You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. Myra Coleman joins us today, and she is the illustrator of The Elements of Style by William Strunk Jr. and the author of The Principles of Uncertainty and The Pursuit of Happiness. She is also the author-illustrator of numerous children's books, including illustrating Lemony Snicket's 13 Words. Her artwork has graced the cover of The New Yorker, and her watches, clocks, accessories, and paperweights have been featured at the Museum of Modern Art store. She lives in New York City. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I am a longtime fan of your work and your life. And there are several phrases that I associate with you and I want to ask you to elaborate on. So I'm just going to say the phrase and then you just tell me what you think when I say it. Visual storyteller. That's because I didn't like my writing. So I decided I still had to tell a story. And I thought, well, maybe drawings might work and I could do a narrative in the world of Saul Steinberg, kind of. Are there others who you think are are working in in a similar way? The probably the best analogy is a children's book because and then it's just transformed for adults. There was a wonderful artist, Charlotte Solomon, who worked in the um, 30s, and she created a beautiful series of gouaches called Life or Opera about her crazy family. With so there was text woven in, but text woven into art is something that artists have been doing for quite a long time. Matisse did it also. So um, it's not something new, but it's a wonderful thing to explore. How is it when you are working collaboratively with writers as the artist? Does that change your approach? Do you like it? Do you dislike it? How, how does that work for you? There's a real nice balance between attending to the, to the narrative, honoring the words that a writer has written, and also not being too bound by any restrictions and, then, and allowing myself to have a free feeling about what that image can be. So uh, I weave in and out of images that I think would make me happy and also are true to the text. And so it's interesting. If I love the text, it's fantastic. And is, are there times when you don't love the text? I mean, what, how, what do you do then? Probably it used to be in the earlier part of my career when I would just need work. And even then, I would always try to make something interesting for me so that I wasn't bored with it and perhaps digress from the point, which is always a good part of the point is to digress. My next phrase is curiosity versus knowledge. Well, that's easy. I have no knowledge, so I better have a lot of curiosity. You know, the, it, the most important thing is to have curiosity because there's no way on earth that you could know as much as you, anybody thinks they should know. And the older you get, the, it, it's funny that you give up knowing and you say that there are things that I'm really interested in and I'm going to pursue those, and that's going to be my focus. So, And we also used to say at our studio, imagination is more important than knowledge. So we had another out. Einstein said that. So we said, okay, if Einstein can say that. But it really is the essence of work, which is that you're curious to find out what you might do next. That leads to a certain sense of freedom and facileness that that we spoke before we went on about, you know, sort of your your experience with your mother and the freedom that she gave you, it sounds like to me from what, I, what I've read. And I wonder 
did you approach child rearing in the same way and do you recommend it? Because I, I, I think it sounds so much more appealing than sort of the tiger mom approach and it seems to have a, a distinct benefit in your case. I mean, it's such a beautiful career. Yeah, well, it's worked for me. And the interesting thing is that, you know, you never know what's going to work. And I always tell my kids, it's something that I joke about, that, I, you know, re remember no matter what I've done the best, I, you know, I've done the best I could. Because really, all you can do is follow your instincts. And even though you can read certain books about how to do this or how to do that, in the end, you don't really know what you're doing. So you have to make a leap of faith and hope that your love and trust in them manifests in the next generation being okay. The next phrase is loopy optimism. I've heard you describe yourself as being a loopy optimist. I should probably say that I'm a sad optimist. That would probably be more appropriate for how I, how I live and how I feel. Because you can't always be an optimist. You have to also be in despair part of the time. And I managed to balance those things out. But in the end, if you say, in the end, I probably lean towards doing, and I think that's the nature of being an optimist, that you have a certain kind of energy and you don't give up on it. You're not bitter. You say, okay, I will do this thing, as opposed to, oh, what's yeah. the point? Oh, I like that a lot. I like that definition, because I think that's really quite true. That is the distinction. Those that get discouraged and sit still, and those that get discouraged and stand up. I think that's great. And lastly, meaningful distraction. Well, that's really important because it's like the digression. If you are working on something and you're not noticing, well, everybody has a different way of working. I work in such a way that I walk a lot and I'm looking at things and I'm looking at the world around me and, and deriving joy from so many things during the day that I didn't know I would encounter. Those distractions are joyous. They really are. And they enter into my work. Uh, and sometimes... Work is the essence, and sometimes work is essential to uh, keep you from not knowing what to do, you know, so that, you, you, that no matter what, you just keep on working. Sometimes it'll be good, sometimes it'll be bad, sometimes you'll be, you know, really feeling it, sometimes not, but that it's essential just to keep that momentum going with some breaks for just wandering around in, in a daze. So is that, is it predominantly standing up and taking a walk that, that, that helps you with this practice? Are there other, other ways? I mean, I'm so interested in, in your various collections as well. And does that, does that play a part in it so that sort of you're always sort of searching and keeping your eye trained for various things that you might, that you might pick up and that you might gather? Well, everybody's always collecting images, and the images give you emotions. You know, so you're, that's a bank of stuff. You don't even have to actually get anything because you're collecting all day long. And then you're sorting through it and trying to edit, well, what's important? And what do I love? And what's beautiful? And what's funny? So that kind of thing is going on all day long. And then if I'm actually collecting things like postcards or moss. Or a broken or, chairs. Or broken what chairs. What do you do with all your Well, I don't really chairs. bring them. Okay. I, you can't, I don't right? really bring them home. <laughs> I bring them home in my mind. No, okay. I take pictures. Okay. You take you a know, picture, I take and then you picture. might make a sketch or something. And then make a sketch, yeah. and then I'll do a painting. And somehow that informs how I feel about things. It may, And I may not know what I'm using it for. I may not know that minute what it's about. But I know that it's in my bank of of ideas and um, feelings and a visual, you know, a visual encyclopedia. And that you draw on in, in, in any different kinds of ways. Yeah, many sometimes right ways. away, sometimes years later. All right, so now moving on to your, your current book, My Favorite Things, which is absolutely gorgeous. 
Am I correct in saying that you selected 45 objects out of 217,000, is that the right number, objects as part of the Cooper Hewitt Smithsonian Design Museum Collection Select Series, which is quite the mouthful. I know, that is a mouthful. But, <laughs> but you say, well, I was invited by the Cooper Hewitt to go through their collection as uh, as a as a designer and as an artist and as a writer. And I, I decided I had to see everything, which they thought was kind of absurd. So and where I, is it? But everything? I saw it... a lot. Well, I, I looked at it a lot digitally, so it okay. was really kind of looking at their library of imagery. And then there are warehouses of things in, in other places where all the objects are stored. And because the museum was closed for a few years, th th there wasn't really access to those things. So I had to look at images and just go, and the only criteria was I had to, as I say in the book, gasp with delight. You know, it, it had to bring me this kind of elation, this giddy spark. And that was my criteria. I had, didn't have to know anything. I didn't have to know what they were. And that was another thing. I didn't have to be a curator yeah. and a historian yeah. to just go, that is an amazing spoon. That's definitely going to be in the show. And it was wonderful. It was so much fun. And was it more than 45? That oh, I chose probably like six or seven hundred things. Okay, and then and then the process of editing and editing and you know you end up every job you do you're starting with a with a lot of material you edit down and and then it's it should say the most as, that it can with the least that you have and that's my ideal. For me, the ideal is that if you tell a story. It, there should be as much air as possible in the story. And if I'm curating a room, there should be as much air as possible in the room. So you're not overwhelmed with things. And you can sit on a bench, which is going to have pink velvet, by the way. Awesome. Pink velvet. Uh, <laughs> what did you ask for that? Yes, specifically. specifically. And we spent many, many hours looking at different colors. I mean, it's really wonderful how everything you do, there's, you know, there are days and days of decision making. But, um, and then finally, the pieces that I chose started to tell me a narrative. And that narrative was basically, you know, from birth to death or this different states of emotions that we go through during the day or during our life, you know, both actually. And that the vitrines were some of the objects were my furniture, like a bed or a chair or a chaise, that you walked into this museum and you may be walking into my living room. Wow. And then we just and we pass through the different the different galleries and through I have one room, right. My show is one room. Oh, okay. In the music room of, of the Carnegie Mansion, what used to be the music room of the Carnegie Mansion. The rest of the museum is has been renovated and has yeah, wonderful I shows. I would have thought maybe it was more than one room, but they're all in one room. So, My so show much is, time yeah. must have been spent sort of deciding how to lay, lay that out. Unbelievable amounts. Of, I mean, basically, I've been working on this for three, of course, not full time, but three years. It's been germinating and marinating and, and working with the curators there who are incredible and the installers and the preparators and all of the people, the many, many people. We don't move anything an inch without six people weighing in whether it's a good inch or not. So that's a lot of fun, too. All right, well, I wanted to ask you some general questions about books and reading. If you had a 13-year-old that you wanted to uh, recommend a book to, what book would you recommend? Oh, God, I got a 13-year-old. Jane Austen. Which one? I don't know, girl or boy? Well, <laughs> that's a very boy. good question, right? I would start with Pride and Prejudice. I think that's one of the one of the cornerstones of literature. But I really, this is a tough one. I would also say Winnie the Pooh, just because I love Winnie the Pooh so much, and I think any age can read it. But, but oh, this is a little bit. I'm a little bit uh, at a disadvantage. I don't remember. Yeah, I'm springing it on you. Maybe some Salinger, and not Catcher Catcher in the Rye, but some other Salinger. 
there's something about the language there that's just so beautiful, the short stories. Do you remember the last book that you spoke about with a friend and what you, what you talked about? Yes, because two books. One is, I'm in a Proust group, as is everybody else in New York City. No, so I'm not. You're not, not ever, this is one of the decisions of there is a finite amount of time in life. What am I going to spend some serious time doing? And it, and it turned out to be that I thought this is what I need, really need to do, which actually turned out to be extraordinary. It's one of the most extraordinary things I've ever done. And we have a leader who really understands what we're reading. So it isn't, I mean, yeah, it's that's, fine. To, that's you know, you're not important. like going in a circle of opinions. You have somebody who anchors you with true information and can guide you through what's a, a complicated but celestial endeavor. What else were we reading that? Um, oh, The Walk, Robert Walser's The mm -hmm. Walk. I was talking about that with a friend of mine who's a choreographer. And we're talking about how to make that if, you know, that he might be interested in making that into a, a dance piece. piece. A piece, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. What's your desert island book? If you could take only one. Proust. Proust. How often do you all meet? Do you meet like once every six weeks? Once or? a month. Once a month. 50 pages a month. Okay. I guess really that's, slow okay, that's reading, yeah. which is the greatest thing on earth. Yes. It's a seven-year commitment, so one volume a year. Really? We're in year three. So this is this is similar to your bowling shoes. It's the 50 pages. It slows down time. Are forcing you to yeah. slow down. It's two pages a day. You focus on something in a very, and the, and if you don't do slow, close reading, you can't then you don't it. even know what you're you know, talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. And do you meet at folks' houses, or do you meet somewhere We meet at our neutral? leaders. We meet at oh. our leader's house, our that Proust sounds fantastic. leader, Bridget Brine. All right, I have one more question. What, uh, because I heard Francis McDormand talking about um, Olive Kitteridge. What book would you most want to make into a TV miniseries? Like, what do you think could adapt to a nice long four hours? I can't even begin to think of anything. Alice in Wonderland. Oh, there you go. Four hours, Alice in Wonderland. That's a good one. All right, I'm going to ask you to do one more thing. Will you please read what is printed on the back of your book? Photographs of dancers and of dandies and dogs. Abraham Lincoln's pocket watch. Naps, breaths, trees, Ingo Maurer's lamp, buttons, lists. These are some of my favorite things. Book, fish, suit, time, mother, father, life. Everything is part of everything. We live, we blunder. Love unites us. Thank you so very much for making the trip and sitting down with me. I really appreciate it. That's very sweet of you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Harper Audio Presents is edited by Sharon Matlin with production help from Jennifer Monroe. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and the books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents, and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture, and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.